You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. offshoot of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Sarah Kluster, and joining me are Alexis Neal and Katie Grubbs. Tonight, or today, whenever you happen to be listening, we are discussing one of my favorite musicals, though I can't say it will rank as highly for my friends, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. It's an original movie musical from 1954 and is directed by Stanley Donnan and starring Jane Powell and Howard Keel as the first of the seven brides and seven brothers um ladies alexis how are you uh, how are you doing this evening i'm just fine sarah how are you well enough i love this musical and so i'm super excited to be talking about it and what about you katie i'm great um i was um, I was under the impression that I had seen this before, maybe as a kid, and then realized when I was watching it that I have never seen it before and maybe only saw a, a, like a clip of one of the biggest dance scenes. So this was really fun to watch it for the first time. Well, I am glad uh, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I, I, I think we, I saw this for the first time in elementary school, and it has always just stuck with me. And when I was dating my husband, we were talking about movies one time, and we just both – reveal like oh this one kind of random not quite as famous musical is like both of our favorites so that was kind of a, a funny thing and occasionally when he's feeling uh very funny he will sing uh one of the the opening song to me <laughs> i <laughs> love that <laughs> bless your beautiful hide whenever he's particularly pleased if i've like made him a cake or baked him cookies or something if i'm feeling very milly uh, he'll occasionally sing this to me a little bit so that's kind of fun that's adorable we try. We try. So can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the movie uh, and kind of how it came to be, Katie? Absolutely. Um, so um, unlike a lot of musical films, um, this was a movie musical. It was made originally as a movie musical. It wasn't on Broadway first, um, though people sometimes make that mistake. Um, made in 1954, as Sarah said, directed by Stanley Donnan. Um, music by Saul, Cha- Saul Chaplin and Gene DePaul. Um, and choreography by this guy, Michael Kidd. Um, and the movie was actually very much based around the choreography, um, which was in some ways unusual for the time. Um, Kidd did some things in the film with choreography, particularly with the male dancers um, and the ways that they were dancing. Um, the, the most obvious example would be the Lonesome Polecat song and dance number. That whole song was actually created around some ideas that Kidd had about how he wanted to choreograph the scene and how you could do um, make a dance based around normal activities that these guys might do on the farm, like chopping wood out in the snow or things like that. Um, And in fact, a a lot of the songs in the film were based around ideas for choreography. So in that way, it may you might think of it as slightly backwards a little bit. Um, The movie, one of the the, the most most interesting things about this film to me is that it was an unexpected hit. 
Um, the movie was being made at the same time as the Lerner and Lowe musical Brigadoon. Um, and the same studio was making both. And um, a lot more resources were going into Brigadoon. Um, I know Jane Powell, who starred in the film as Millie, she said in her autobiography or in her memoir that they felt like the studio wasn't really paying that much attention to the production of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and because they were more interested in Brigadoon and were actually taking money from the budget for Seven Brides to add to Brigadoon. Well, then both films came out. Brigadoon did not do well at the box office, and um, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers was an unexpected hit. Um, they had a budget of uh, about $2.5 million, and the film made over $9 million in 1954, so a huge profit. Um, it was very popular um, from the beginning when it first came out, and uh, has, uh, has, has been, I mean, has remained popular since it first came out. Um, it was actually nominated for Best Picture and, uh, and won an Oscar for, um, I believe, Best Original Song. Oh, I'm going I'm to look it up just to make sure that I'm not wrong about that. Um, yeah, won, uh, sorry, won Academy Award for Best Scoring of a Musical Picture. Um, and, uh, yeah, and uh, the, a lot of the actors um, and actresses in the film were not actually actors and actresses, but were actually uh, professional dancers. Um, and the... Uh, Howard Keel and Jane Powell were both accomplished actors and singers. Um, they played the main pair, Adam and Millie. Um, but a lot of the other ones were dancers. In particular, Jacques Dambois, who plays Ephraim, um, was actually principal dancer with the New York City Ballet. And if you watch the credits carefully in the film, it says at the bottom under his name, courtesy of New York City Ballet. Um, and he actually had to leave production before the end of the before the movie was completely filmed because the ballet needed him back. And so um, supposedly I didn't go back again after I read this and watching the movie. Supposedly a few scenes at the very end, like when Millie's having her baby and she's in labor or something, you can kind of tell that it's a different guy, though. I think he's one of the brothers who has pretty heavy facial hair. So probably it's not that obvious it's a different person if that guy has the same facial hair. Um, anyway, so that's just a little bit about the movie. Um, and it is based on a short story called The Sobbing Women by this guy, Stephen Vincent Benet who was an American poet and, and short story writer who actually won the Pulitzer Prize for poetry. Um, he wrote a book length poem about the civil war called John Brown's body that won the Pulitzer um, in 1928. Um, and he also wrote a short story based on the rape of the Sabines, which is called the Sabin women. And that's um, kind of how they refer to it in the film. So um, anyway, that's just a quick grounding for any viewers who aren't, or for any listeners, sorry, who aren't familiar with the, uh, with the movie. Thank you very much, Katie. Well, we have the background. Um, essentially, what happens in this movie is it, we have a, a backwoodsman, Adam Pontepe. It's a very odd last name. He comes down from the mountains to find a wife. And he goes to the nearest town, brings in his goods. He's trading for tobacco and lard and various other things. And while he's in the shop, he decides he's going to ask for a wife. Everybody is slightly appalled by this because the character... He he has his like big scruffy beard. He's like wearing like deer skin. He's rocking the the like the bounty like the mountain man like Mr. Bounty kind of look. If you can kind of envision that, and so he he's looking around town singing an excellent song with an excellent baritone, and he he finds Millie, a local young woman without any without any family, uh, proposes to her after uh, basically watching her work and eating her cooking 
And then she agrees to marry him against the better, the best wishes of and the best intentions of several townspeople to try to persuade her otherwise. They go back up to the farm, uh, Adam's farm in the mountains, only for Millie to discover that Adam is actually the oldest of seven men. And Millie has now been expected to basically become Adam's wife and pseudo big sister slash mother to the six other men who all have alphabetical Bible names, with the exception of Frank, because apparently there are no Bible names that start with an F. Millie, she attempts to kind of bring religion and civility into the home with mixed success. She works on getting the men to clean up, stop fighting, you know, very traditional um, idea of the woman kind of civilizing. She kind of takes them into town. They meet some other, uh, the brothers meet some women at a barn raising in what is to my opinion, the best dance, American dance scene ever filmed. They kind of have love at first sight. They, men, they get a little lonely. They decide to take the advice of Plutarch because that's what one does, obviously. And they steal the brides from their families. An avalanche ensues during the winter. And apparently they're snowed up in those mountains for like 10 months. And then, like all good comedies, the movie ends with a wedding. But not just one wedding, six shotgun weddings, to be precise. And we have our seven brides for our seven brothers. This is all taking place in 1850s Oregon, so before it's a state. And it's really heavily implied that um, Adam's family, the Pontifes, have been there for an incredibly long amount of time. They are very much portrayed as very kind of backwoodsmen well as Millie and all these, and the girls who are out of the town, they obviously have this representation of, like, civilization. So all these people, essentially, they made it on the Oregon Trail all the way out to Oregon, and none of them died of dysentery. So, good for them. This uh, story also talks a lot about um, and refers a lot to the rape of the Sabines, and so that's what it's uh, based off of. And so the movie keeps referring to the story, like, through Plutarch and Plutarch's lives, our parallel lives, which Millie reads constantly, and I can't imagine anything more boring than constantly having to read Plutarch. But that's just me. Um, but the more commonly used account for the rape of the Sabine is actually from Livy. And so he talks about how... The, myth, the mythical founder of Rome, uh, Romulus, he's attempting to make like a treaties with the Sabine who are, you know, nearby because they need to grow the new city of Rome. Uh, Livy talks about how he tried to make treaties and the Sabine spurned them and wouldn't uh, wouldn't allow intermarriage. And so Romulus decides to hold a huge religious festival and invites the Sabine and the Latins and everybody to attend. And then he gives a signal while at the festival. And all the men abduct <laughs> the various women. And, and that he also very specifically states that there is no, that no women were actually really assaulted. So when they're using the word rape here, it's from the Latin of like to abduct or to take by force, not the more common uh, use that we would consider it for, you know, an overt sexual assault. And then... Livy states that, yes, they were wooed, and the women decided that, yes, they wanted to stay because they were promised all these rights of citizenship for their sons. And this instance, well, it sounds to us, we would say, like, oh, that's clearly mythology. That's clearly not something that really happened. That's obviously a foundation myth. 
actual Romans would have considered this to be real history, and it was really debated in the time that what does this mean that this that the first Roman marriage was a result of rape, abduction, of force? What does it say about the Roman character? And so this was something that was debated during, you know, by by uh, many uh, folk, uh, writers and historians when they would kind of look back on this. But, th but that is the historical context that the uh, movie is really based on. And so you can really kind of see some of the parallels. And we'll talk about many of those very important things, but I have the most important question to ask my colleagues at the moment. And ladies, which brother do you think is the most handsome? I'm going to throw my uh, hat in for Benjamin. Brother number two. I think he's the most handsome. That Both is the before... correct answer. <laughs> Both before and after he gets shaved. Um, Adam, I think, is super handsome with his beard. But then when he shaves his beard off, I was like, meh. He's just all right after that. Benjamin looks just as good without the beard. Yeah, what do you well, think, Alexis? He has the curly like mustache that kind of curls at the end. And I'm not quite as much of a fan of that. That makes him look like a villain. Which is appropriate. Right? Which which one which one do you think, Alexis? Well, I confess I had trouble telling them apart through most of the film. So I'm going to go with Gideon because he punches Adam in the face. And that yes. earns him hotness points for me, regardless of what his actual appearance is. He's really cute. And he, you're right. He's he's easier, aside from being the baby and, and he punches Adam at the end, it's easier to, to keep him apart from the rest because he has a really interesting face. Um, you know, and he looks different than the other brothers. He's the least redheaded for one thing. Um, but yeah, th that punch was one of my favorite parts of the movie. And he's also the closest thing that the brothers have to a moral voice. Which is interesting that he's the youngest. I, I, that's one thing I didn't think about till right now, but it's kind of upside down in this movie a little bit because you have biggest brother who's in charge, but he's the one who's making all the bad decisions. And then the youngest brother is kind of the voice of reason. Which I suspect may have something to do with a power dynamic, right? The, the, Millie is less powerful physically than Adam, but she has a lot of influence and wields that influence differently. And Adam has always had power and has not apparently developed a whole lot else. And Gideon lacks power and has developed some shadow of something like empathy and compassion and morality, even if he needs Millie to help him cultivate it more. Um, it seems like the more powerful someone is, the less likely they are to have, possess those qualities. Interesting. I see what you're saying. We have all these questions here, and all of a sudden, I just wanted to jump in with one that we hadn't even talked about, even though we've been talking about questions. Um, ladies, we have, you know, we have, obviously Millie is this kind of representation of this civilizing force. Um, women, civilized men, it's a tale as old as time. What do we think? Is there anything specific that we think that we can take of it? Like she's going up there, she's in the wagon, she's all excited to go up there and start her new life. And the two books that this poor woman, the only two books this poor woman has are the Bible, which, you know, was probably a King James version and Plutarch's lives. What do, what do we, what do we say, take this to mean that these only books this poor woman has are Plutarch's lives and the Bible? What What is that telling us? Well, I don't know as much about the historical setting, so I don't know if that's two more books than anybody else would have. 
Um, so even if it doesn't seem like a particularly large library for us, as you mentioned, if they have to haul all their worldly goods by wagon train, um, books might not be a high priority. I mean, when I played Oregon Trail, I don't remember books being a high priority compared to things like extra wheels or whatever. Um, so she may have more books than most do. I think it's supposed to signal to us that she has morality and education. I think that that's probably true. And I mean, you know, if I if if I was going to be surprised by any of that, it would be that it's Plutarch and not like the collector works of Shakespeare, because a lot of people in the 19th century would have the Bible and have Shakespeare place. Um, but I mean, the, the kind of stupid answer of why she has Plutarch is because she needs to have Plutarch for the sake of the plot. But I, I do think that that would not it would not be crazy that you would have something like that in a household um, that it would be thought of as edifying. Um, and I mean, it's maybe supposed to tell us something about her parents. Cause I think she said it belonged to her father. She doesn't have any family anymore, which I found that interesting that she's out in the Oregon territory alone with no family that I guess that kind of implies that her parents took her out there and then they died maybe, or I don't know, or maybe she went on on her own, but um, you know, she seems to be beloved by the other people in this little town, um, but none of them are actually related to her. Um, and so maybe that's supposed to tell us something too, about what her parents were like, that her dad had a copy of Plutarch's lives and used to read it to her when she was a little kid. Yeah, I actually, and, and I don't know, again, the historical setting, I was a little surprised it wasn't a philosopher. Again, I understand it has to be Plutarch so that Adam can learn this terrible story and use it for terrible purposes. But um, but I would have expected if you're trying to signal education, um, often I tend to think, you know, a, a Plato and Aristotle, something like that, um, where you're you're clearly signaling both potentially a familiarity with foreign language, not always, and then also philosophy um, as something that, you know, is is just, I think, often a stand in for education. Um, and and I will say, I think if we start to try and think about the origin stories for all these characters, we're going to get headaches real fast because I cannot figure out for the life of me what happened to the Pontipi parents and how they raised their boys to be old enough to survive in the wilderness, but not old enough to learn how to eat with a knife and fork or uh, say grace, even though they name them after Bible characters. So I think I think the movie plays a little fast and loose with the idea of any kind of coherent history for the characters before the start of the movie. Which, you know, if you think about it, and I mean, I'm, I don't want to push too hard on this because honestly, I don't think this movie is trying to be that cerebral, but his name is Adam. And in some ways, you know, he is kind of him marrying Millie and bringing her back and Millie kind of embarking on this project to civilize the whole family. Like they're kind of, they're founding a family, right? Like all their parents are dead and he brings Millie and she tells when, when Benjamin, the movie, um, his, his let's kidnap all the women plot is precipitated by her telling him, Hey, they're all unhappy without these girls. They've fallen in love with. And Benjamin is thinking about leaving. And she says, I always imagined that they would all get married, married girls close around here. And we would all live close to each other and like have all our babies and they would play together. And so she's like envisioning this kind of future right a legacy of this giant family with all these kids and they're all close and it's all happy and in that way you know even though he has all these brothers adam and millie are almost kind of creating a family from scratch like you know they're starting something um which is is also kind of interesting yeah i think it's really interesting that you know you have you have millie who uh is going in and she has she has nobody right and so 
she has and she has no man to take care of her and in fact her her entire job is caring for men right she's working at like the inn the tavern something like that as cook slash waitress and yeah she ba- she basically trades the same job over um for adam and when they move in and you um and I will say, Millie, she, I, I love her character, even though obviously I would like some bad decisions there. But she really, she does have a lot of spunk and she does stand up for herself a lot, which I really appreciate. Um, and it does not take long for basically she has more, she's the most influential person in the family, basically like by day two. And so she, she does stand up for herself a lot, which I, I appreciate. So. No, I love that about her. I mean, Adam drives me absolutely up the wall, but I actually really like her character. If nothing else, her the, the, the degree to which she's just unflappable is kind of remarkable. I, I think when, when she gets there the first night and he's like, great, cook our dinner, and the house is just a complete and total wreck, and you can tell, like, and, and at Jane Powell, it's, she does a good job in the scene, but when she just kind of freezes for a second and then rapidly shoves her sleeves up like, all right, I'm going to get down to work. Like, you know, she, it's almost like she makes up her mind to go, well, you know, I'm going to make the best I can of this situation instead of, you know, kind of uh, retreating. It's interesting. Um, And I think that she, it's interesting to me too, how much she comes across once the other women show up, how much she comes across as like a matriarch, even though she's really not that much older than they are. Right. They're supposed to be her BFFs. I think they're all supposed to be about the same age, but maybe because she's been kind of mothering a band of adult men for like months by the time these other women show up. Now she almost seems like the matriarch of just what becomes a giant clan of people. I wonder, though, if some of that is uh, just just by virtue of being married. I think sometimes there would be that social shift where you would be viewed as more mature, even than someone older than you, if you were married and they were not um at least i feel like i remember that from oh books like <clears throat> jane austen where uh younger women who got married would well, yeah, lydia bennett right she talks very condescendingly to her older sisters about like stuff you won't understand because you're not married um and and granted she's not a great example of anything moral but i do wonder if some of that is just she's now married she is viewed as an, an older wiser woman just by virtue of no longer being single that makes sense. And I would say culturally at the time, that would absolutely be true. Well, I will say as someone who didn't get married until I was 32, that that is still the case. And we have a whole Christian feminist episode about that. So go listen to that one. That one was a really good one. So we have Millie, who is wonderful, hardworking. And then we have Adam, who, as uh, Alexis, uh, very... Uh, succinctly put out uh points out sucks because he intentionally deceives her to get her up there to have a essentially have a maid with benefits is kind of what adam is going for right and so the idea that like he it does not occur to him that he will have to make like some sort of change in this that, like, yes, she'll come up here and she will make everything better, but the idea that, like, there's going to be any sort of give and take is not really in his, like, in his idea. But you still do see, like, you still do see the changes that Millie makes in terms of, like, one, they stop all wearing, like, 
animal skins, they actually start wearing normal clothes, apparently. And then they're sitting around as a family, having actual family time, like they're doing that kind of stuff. And so they are cultivating this family environment. But do you think, do you think that uh, Millie and Adam change each other for the better? Does Adam change Millie in any positive ways? Like, what do we think about this? I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like to me, she, she is who she is. And I mean, and I don't know, I wouldn't say that she, that she really changes, but, but I think that that's good. She almost has this, once she arrives, she almost has this kind of, um, you know, like you said, she almost immediately becomes the center of the household and she, she starts out strong, kind of spunky. You know, he sees her chopping wood. That's like what attracts him to her. Um, and she stays that way, you know, and, and I mean, unshakable. One of my favorite parts in the film is when she, she tells him he can't come in and he, she can't believe that, you know, that he instigated this plan to kidnap the women and, and he's a horrible person. Why would he ever do that? And, um, he gets angry and, and is going to leave and does leave, um, to go to the cabin for the winter or whatever. But, um, Gideon wants her to ask him to stay and she says he has to learn you can't treat people this way that's one of my favorite parts in the movie because she he does he does need to learn that that's the thing and so I think he he changes um she doesn't she doesn't change to me very much um she seems to or she seems to display at the end of the film a remarkable capacity for forgiveness um but but she may have had that all along you know what I mean? So I don't know. He and I feel like he he does make a positive change at the end of the movie, though. I was I did not realize. And I told David we finished the movie and I said, so apparently Adam literally his his change of heart at the end of the movie can be described as as a father of a daughter. I've learned this is wrong. Right. Like, yep. Like women snark about that all the time now. And because he says, you know, I realize suddenly would I want someone to kidnap my little girl and carry her off? No, I wouldn't because he's become a father, even though he didn't know it. And so, I mean, it is it is a positive ethical change towards maturity, though we we might quibble with the reason for this. Why is he just now figured out now that he's had a child that this is a terrible idea and that, you know, you didn't maybe sense it was a terrible idea when all the women are crying and screaming as you're taking them through the dangerous mountain pass where there might be an avalanche. Um, but I don't think, I don't know. I, I, I don't think that, uh, I don't think Millie changes very much, but, and I don't mean that in a bad way. She's, she's a static character in a good way. You don't really want her to change. I don't know that I would have wanted him to change her um, because she is a pretty great character from the beginning. Um, and which is why I think she she has such a good influence on the whole family. Yeah, I think I think that's fair with the regard with regard to Millie. I would have liked to see more behind the curtain. Um, so when she's talking about her dealings with Adam, she's very frank and she's she basically says, look, I love you. I loved you since I saw you. And so I'm going to stick this out and I'm going to be kind to you. And I'm going to all of these things that she puts up with. Uh, she's very direct and says, this is because I love you. And when you love someone, you do all of this stuff. And, uh, and that's her view. I would have loved to see a little bit more of a realization or just an articulation of her attitude toward the brothers, like some kind of, I realize that they didn't know any better, or I realize that with an example like Adam, how could I be surprised or, or some kind of something um, to justify the, the compassion that she treats them with. And, and what I think is really a winsome 
and ultimately gentle way of handling them. I mean, she she takes their pants away and makes them give up their underpants to be washed. But she also is like, I made you this awesome breakfast. And I mean, she is cajoling as much as she is um, kind of pushing them around a bit. Um, and and I just I would have liked to see a little more of something behind why she's doing that to give her some depth. Like my mom always taught me to, you know, be kind to others or my dad, something that would explain it because it does seem like she gets to the point where she seems not to be a real person because she so consistently responds in patience um, or responds in, in this. Yeah. It, it almost feels like she's being made into a paragon of what a wife should be in ways that I start to have questions about, particularly since her marriage with Adam does not seem particularly healthy and she doesn't seem to be able to do much about that. That makes sense. In some ways it, it feels, it feels problematic in some of the same ways that the taming of the truth feels problematic, which is interesting because when I, the first time, and I didn't know when I said this, that Howard Keel was also in the musical kiss me, Kate, but I watched when I first started the the movie and I was partway through it, I, I paused it and said something to David, like, man, he's like, he's like Petruchio, but worse, like, or, you know, something like that. But it, there's that same kind of, cl- there's a, I mean, even though Millie does it very quietly, there's a similar kind of clash of wills and a similar kind of like, not capitulation, but I mean, it ends happily. But like you said, Alexis, you're at the time you're thinking, do we want it to end this happily? You know, um, and I hadn't thought about that till just now. I suppose she's taming all these boys instead of a shrew being tamed. And I, and I, I, I mean, we can, we can talk about it when we get there, but I'm not convinced that Adam undergoes a significant change. Like you pointed out, he basically realizes that it makes him feel bad to think about something happening to his daughter. So if it makes him feel bad, maybe it's not a good thing to do. He doesn't talk about how his daughter might feel. And yeah, his daughter's an infant, so maybe that's part of it. But it is not only women matter because they're connected to men, but it is women matter because they're connected to men. And if bad things happen to them, the men might not like it. Um, And that's not a great movement in the right direction. I think a better, a a better picture of potential improvement or, or, or development is when he's talking to the brothers and tells them, look, you might be able to take on all of these brothers and fathers and boyfriends and everything like that and win but at the end of the day if you kill a man who matters to one of these women they're not going to want to marry you and that's almost the first time I think it is the first time that anything resembling what a woman wants or what matters to a woman seems to be thought about by Adam Um, so that to me was actually the point where he's using that as a way of persuading the brothers Look, the women will not choose you if you take away something that matters to them, not just the women matter to men. Yeah, that's true. It's the interesting thing about Adam to me, too, is to me, the part of the the part of the movie where he's most sympathetic is in the first like 10 minutes. To me, the best Adam part where he seems like the best dude is when he is proposing to her and he gives her that speech about how. Like, look, if I had the time, if we lived back east, I would like 
meet you at church and six months later I might ask permission to come visit you at your house and then I might visit you for like two years to court you and then I would ask you to marry me but like we don't have time for that because we're in the wilderness and I got to be home by five to feed my stock like that that speech to me is he seems very level-headed you know he seems like he's he is in town to find a wife not great but he's kind you know but then it's like it goes downhill from there (laughs) for a long time And I will say in his defense, I don't know that he deliberately deceived her about his situation because he's very frank with the shop owners that he has seven brothers and there's a lot to do and he needs a wife. Um, Because his reaction when Millie starts singing about how nice it will be to only have to care for one man after working in the, the local bar is he kind of is like, oh, snap, I didn't tell her this part yet. Um, And it doesn't seem I didn't read the expression as, oh, no, I lied to her, but more of a oh, I should tell her this, but I really don't want to because she's so happy right now. Um, So I think it was more, I do think that was more of an oversight uh, because he is so, hey, this is the deal. I need someone to come and work and all of these things. Uh, I don't think it was a deliberate deception, but he does then deliberately not disclose the truth to her once he realizes she's laboring under a misapprehension. Yeah, uh, it's one of those things that, you know, uh, watching it, you know, watching this movie as a kid and then watching it as an adult, I'm almost kind of like, you know, like, I like the actor and I like his songs, so I always kind of wish I liked the character a little more. Um, and that, to me, the thing that I feel like I would just, I could have so much more respect for, it, like, the character of Adam Hanaby is when he's talking with Benjamin and he, you hear the, like, ah, oh, one woman's pretty much like the next. I, it feels, it feels like at least a little needlessly cruel on behalf to like make Millie overhear that. Right. That, you know, we could have said something else or we could have just not had that scene and like, okay, they're just, they're happy, but it just, it felt, it feels just slightly needlessly like turning, like turning a screw a little bit. Like, no, he still really hasn't made like, not just like, Oh, cause we're like, Oh, he's having, it feels like, like, Oh, he's having incremental change. He's, doing this, he's being like this patriarch head of a family, they're socializing with the rest of the community, we're making improvements and then it feels like the they were like oh no, we need to make it seem like he's a real jerk again and then they just kind of give us that scene, does that make sense? Yeah, it does well and I mean, you know the, the scene you talked about, the famous dancing scene that turns into a brawling fighting scene you know, I mean he's the one that's interesting, too, because in that scene, everybody else, it's its kind of everybody else in his family against him because she counsels them not to fight back. And they're not. None of the brothers will fight back, even though they're being physically hurt by these other guys. And and, and that enrages him. And I mean, you know, I, ha- I have a small amount of sympathy for Adam in that scene because, you know, I don't know. I'm an oldest sibling. And it's 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 like, a you know, if somebody was deliberately physically hurting my younger brothers and sisters i would make me real mad and i might want to to fight back too but the results of that are so catastrophic that then he's just he's on the outs again and you he becomes unsympathetic again it's almost like he has the he kind of goes up and down um a couple of different times and i think when and i also think he seems self-centered enough like alexis was talking about oh he realizes that you shouldn't kidnap women because it would make me upset if someone kidnapped my daughter but i feel like when he says that about one woman is 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 just basically the same as another woman i think he means that about gideon's girlfriend that he misses but i don't actually know that he would really means that about millie because he picked her out on purpose when he could have taken. And, and in the opening song, he sings about why other women won't do. 
So it almost, I, I almost feel like, I felt like when he said that, she takes it to mean he doesn't care anything about me. When he said it, I thought he's just being dismissive because it's Gideon's girl. And he's like, whatever, it's just Gideon's girl. Like, she's just a face with blonde hair. <laughs> like, I don't know. I, I kind of, I didn't take that to be indicative of his feelings about all women because I, I, I'd almost like felt like he would see, be like, well, the woman I picked out is great, but you guys, whatever, just get a different one. But that, that's probably just me. No, I mean, it, it, one of the things that I think is interesting is in their conversations with, with Adam and the brothers, the only attribute of a woman that is mentioned, I think, is her appearance. And he's very explicit when he's looking for a wife that he wants someone who is going to work hard. Presumably, the things that are true of his situation at the homestead are not any less true for the other brothers. Whoever they marry would need to also work hard because it's a hard life. I don't know that we see any evidence that the women that they end up with are particularly hardworking. Maybe you have to be to be in Oregon in 1850. I don't know. But that piece of it, um, we, we certainly don't see that in, in the way that he speaks about the brothers' love interests. Um, it's only in terms of pretty faces. And there's just always another pretty face and it doesn't matter. Um, and I will say a lot of what he sings about in that opening song is what she looks like, right? She needs to not be cross-eyed, not be too skinny, not be too fat. Um, and so, you know, like you said, it's every time he makes a tiny step that maybe is something promising, he kind of then undermines it immediately. Um, because yeah, he, that, that song's not great either. I have to say, I, I love that song just cause he, he sings it so well. I'm just like, Oh yes. Yes, whatever you say. Oh, like I have, I very much have that kind of reaction to it. But super catchy. It's been in my head all day. Like, because you're right. It's as 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 in terms of how it's constructed, it's a really good song, and and the the melody is is great. And you're right. I mean, he, the way he sings it is awesome. You know, he has a wonderful voice. Um, and you know, it, it does kind of make you forget that what he's singing about is how women should meet his beauty standards. <laughs> Because um, it is such a catchy song. My personal beef with the song in this one is in the spring, spring, spring song at the end when there's some line about um, like things getting shinery and all the animals are in their finery. And it's just the worst rhyme I've ever heard. And, and I and I told David to the point where I told David about it later. I was like a little bit pained about it. But I did enjoy that whole sequence where the where where the winter is passing and like the seasons are changing and, and they talk and they sing through the song, the months that they're going through. I enjoyed that. I thought that was a kind of a cool way of transitioning through time, through the winter while they're snowed in. My, uh, my song pet peeve is the sobbing women song for, I think, obvious reasons. And it makes me even more angry that he sings it well. And it's super catchy because it is both a great and a terrible song. And I do not want to be singing it to myself at all ever but I am because it's a great and a terrible song. <laughs> yeah, that was the hardest part. Like, like watching them sing that song was actually to me a little bit worse than watching them actually kidnap the women because they're all so gleeful about it. Like, you know, I, I yeah, it was because the way they play the kidnappings for laughs, but it's actually really scary. Like Dorcas gets yanked out the window. I think it's Dorcas or whichever one was putting the pie outside gets yanked out the window. And like one of them, I think it, Dorcas's little sister's in the room and then she just disappears. It's all very scary, even though it's played for laughs. And then on the on the ride back to the homestead, they are physically silenced, prevented from crying out. And then when they get to the other side of the pass, their very cries for help are used to cut them off from rescue. That's super creepy. Um, I really did not like that part. 
uh, where they where they use the cries of the women um, to prevent them from being rescued. Um, that was just really, really gross to me. I feel like the thing that makes this movie like the I think the reason this movie has been popular is is solely because of the end. Like, because it, it, it's it, if you if you think, well, you know, when you're watching the movie, if if the women, you know, in the end, the women are like, oh, you know, we're not sorry this happened and they don't want to go back. You know, they want to stay with these guys, whatever. But if that didn't happen, this would kind of be a horror movie. Right. Like, because it would just be this brutal kidnapping and then, you know, taken off to like forced marriage. It's the end that makes it workable at all as a lighthearted film but you know and, and it's interesting to me i mean and i don't know what it says i mean obviously times have changed but I, it makes me wonder what women watching it in the 50s made of it like were, were they watching the movie and thinking aha this is a lark or were they were they sitting there thinking on the inside this is actually really terrifying and i'm not okay with this but just i didn't say anything about it because the film you know was hugely popular I, I would be interested to talk to somebody i should ask my grandma maybe she watched it back then because she would have been about 30, maybe, when it came out. I should ask her if she went to see it and what she thought about it. My grandma said on my, when I posted about it on Facebook, she said it was her favorite musical. I did not ask why, but she did say that. So um, it's it's entirely possible that it, it played differently. I think it would have been so much better if they'd had, like, one little scene of one of the women saying, oh, 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 hey, come here, come here, and, and participating, and then, like, screaming, like, oh, no, don't take me away after she'd explicitly been a participant. Um, I think that would have made it. But that's not how they played it. Like, the whole point is these women are crying. At one point when they arrive at the homestead, one of them cries for her mother. Yeah, it's 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 very sad. And the, I, and the men are laughing while all of this is happening. And and I expect that from Adam because that's kind of the character he's he's been. But the the brothers, at least to this point, have been portrayed as people who genuinely care about these women. And the idea of like being with someone you care about and watching them be terrified and crying and laughing about that. It's going to take more than a wedding at the end for me to be okay with that, not least since the only men they've seen for the last six months are these men. And I have Stockholm Syndrome questions, even if they say they want to stay. And I know the point of the movie is that they genuinely do like these guys and they genuinely do want to stay. But it could just as easily be a horror movie where at the end they want to stay because yeah. of what's been done to them. Like, that's just as scary, if not scarier, because they wouldn't even necessarily know what had been perpetrated against them by virtue of being held here for six months. Well, one of the things I think you get with this is that, like, so a lot of a lot of the tropes that they use in this seem are very familiar to me as a, uh, probably the, the most staunch uh, trashy romance reader of anybody on the CFP. I'll probably go ahead and own that. Is that like this is like this is a this kind of abduction narrative, like this is a a very standard fare for lots of historical romances, even ones that are written now, right? And so obviously, like y'all said, like you can you can't have an abduction narrative or an abduction romance or anything like that that is set in modern times, right? Just it can't work. And so you have all of these things where it's like she's the daughter of a rival laird and we're like in the eight fifteen hundreds in Scotland. And so it's totally okay that she's been stolen away from her family or they're Vikings or, but this is the thing that like, it's appealing enough to some women that like, this is a major like 
plot point in a very in a substantial amount of romance novels like that are still currently being written yeah you're not wrong about that who was it who which one of us men, which one of you guys mentioned in your notes about victoria holt that was me uh because yeah i read i used to re- well i still read georgette higher uh romances which are a very different uh animal um they are more like a Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, witty banter for 150 pages and then a chaste kiss on the last page. Um, but someone, I think at my church growing up, was like, oh, you like to read those. You should read Victoria Holt. And I think I read like three of them. And in all three of them, someone was raped and then fell in love with their rapist. And I was like, you know, I'm not super old, but this is not OK. And um, and I haven't read any Victoria Holt since then. So I don't know how representative that is of her work, but that was absolutely my experience with her work. Yeah, no, it's legit. I This is going to sound insane. I love Victoria Holt when I was like a teenager, like a young teenager. Um, and they're all very gothic. Um, there's always a young woman who is in a scenario that's vaguely creepy. Um, and it's not always an abduction. Sometimes it's, she's like some kind of, you know, she's isolated and then, you know, some mysterious dude shows up who seems dangerous, but she also kind of likes him. Um, and the first one I ever read, the girl is basically already married and then creepy Gothic shenanigans ensue. And the whole time you're trying to decide if he's the perpetrator or not. Um, but I mean, yeah, it, it was, yeah, it, it was, it was always some kind something like that. And yeah, I don't remember reading those and going, well, this is, this is terrible. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, I, I kind of just absorbed all that, you know, all those Gothic tropes and just without turning a hair, I mean, you know, and I was, I was a very young person, but, um, I, yeah, I don't know. I, it makes me wonder what my young self would have made of this movie, right? Because a lot of people see it, you know, when they're growing up. I never saw this movie until like a couple of days ago. I wonder what I would have thought about it when I was that young, if it would have made me as uncomfortable then as it makes me now. Or if I would have dissociated from it. Because that's the other thing, too, is if you if you t- if you you don't think about the story, right? Like if, you know, which I mean, one of your questions, Sarah, one of your questions was how important is dance to the movie? It's hugely important because I think that's one reason the movie is so revered. If you didn't have... If you just had the story, if you didn't have any of the beautiful dance numbers, I don't know that it would have stayed so popular, in part because of the things that we've been talking about, you know, problematic aspects of the story. But the the dancing is incredible, particularly the way that Kid used the dances to help support the plot. So that when you have the big barn raising scene and you have these the brothers playing out their rivalry with these townsmen through dance. And, and acrobatics and running on, you know, moving logs and all these things they're doing or when they're all sadly chopping wood dance style, you know, just things like that. The way that the dancing works. So, you know, in some ways I would say, like, I know it's your favorite, Sarah. There are great there are moments in this musical that I love and almost all of them are to do with the music and the dancing. And then it's almost like I can kind of just then I just go, oh, well, the, that other stuff. Not great. You know, um, I would watch it again because the music and the dancing was so was so fun. So it's interesting how musical films are like that in a way that, you know, a straight film is not. I feel like with musical films, you can kind of pick out the moments of entertainment that you like more easily and separate it out from the plot if the plot is unlikable or just weak. Sometimes a musical just has a very weak plot and it's really more about the music anyway. Well, one of the things that you I do think is very interesting is that most of the dance, uh, the really really interesting dance moves um, are like the men are doing them, and it's it's very interesting to me to see how they really tried to incorporate 
very everyday things that we would think of as being this very masculine tasks, like we're chopping wood or like out moving logs and all this kind of stuff. And now I feel like that sounds like a lot of innuendo. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and they, uh, but like he, they managed to make it really beautiful. And so to me, that's, that's really compelling. And what, and I just, I, I could watch that barn raising scene over and over and over again. And I, I have, because, to me, one one of the things to have is not just that the not just that the choreography is excellent, but you have this kind of wonderful Aaron Copeland esque like music in the background that's just kind of invoking this like vast like American landscape, right? And, like it just it just sounds American, right? Like if we were to say like what does it sound like? It sounds American. Because it has, it, it takes all these uh, influences of various like folk music and everything, and so it, it it feels like it's speaking to something deep in our psyche, and like, and I think that that's one of the reasons that this movie does has such a has so much popularity, or that it's maintained so much so much of it is because this is essentially like a foundation myth, right? Like it's it's taking the Roman foundation myth, and it's basically plopping it onto America, right? saying that you know this is how we you know this is how we started we are new people we are having to settle a, a new land we you know we have to we ha- you know there are more important things going on and so then you know taking then you know taking the time to woo and all this and like and so the more you think about the parallels like the more and more you're like it really lines up especially the other thing that I was thinking, and I know they didn't actually go for this, like, but I do think it's an unexpected, like, it, it unexpectedly works, is, you know, Romulus, the mythical founder of Rome, he and his twin brother, before he murdered his twin brother, were raised by wolves, were raised by a wolf, right? And I think that, like, the manner of the brothers is as if they were raised by wolves, like, they have such bad manners, and so I feel like it also kind of works a little bit, because poor Mrs. Potomy did, like, a horrible job on that brood, I gotta tell ya. Um, but we've been, we've been talking a lot. Um, does this movie, uh, does, do we feel like it has that the religion or Christianity shown in this movie? Like, is it, is it shown to be positive? I mean, we have, we have a minister, we have Millie and her Bible that, you know, they, when the guys abduct the girls, they're like, oh my gosh, we forgot to get the parson, right? Like, so there's. They're at least they're in God-fearing territory, right? Because they're in Oregon. So, do we feel like religion in Christianity is shown to be positive on the people in the movie? Um, I mean, it's not present for most of it, but there's that one moment when, um, you know, Millie is insisting that they pray before they eat, um, and that's one reason. Um, and if I remember right, that's the reason when she makes them the first dinner, she makes them in the house and they're all just grabbing and everything. She literally turns the table over Jesus style. Now that I think about it, she turns the table over partially because they have terrible manners, but also because they're, they laugh when she says they need to wait for her to say grace. And so, you know, then the next morning when she's, you know, kind of taking all their clothes from them or whatever, she's made in their breakfast. Like she, you know, she, she sits down at the head of the table and, says you know says a a beautiful prayer or whatever and so you know she seems to kind of bring um a sense of faith maybe back into this house right because they're all named after the bible so presumably their parents you know had some kind of 
religious practice or at least, you know, an affinity for the Bible. Um, but it seems to not be happening. And one thing I was going to say earlier that I forgot to say until just now is one of the strangest things about this movie to me is the degree to which Adam is very absent. Like he he's at, there's a lot of Adam at the beginning and he, he you know, proposes to her, he marries her, he brings her back. And then you have, you know, the scenes between them on their first night, her first night in the house. But once she starts kind of civilizing the brothers, he's just never around. And it's kind of weird. It's like, you know, they don't it's like he's not spending that much time with her, which I mean, I don't know, maybe he's supposed to be off working. But why aren't they off working with him? You know, if they're if they all have the leisure to sit around and have her teach him how to dance and court women like what shouldn't he also have time to relax? But she seems I, I feel like she seems to bring faith and religion with her into the house and um, in in a way that, it, you know, it doesn't seem like it was present before. I think in this film, faith is just another word for civilization. I think it's just it's just a way to signal um, that they're becoming more more civilized. They're learning to sit down and eat with a fork and spoon and do laundry sometimes. Um, the town, we see it present in the town, but the town is supposed to be right the civilized place um, for good or for ill. Um, and I also think um, one way that, that religion is not portrayed well, right, is that the, I guess it's the parson or whoever, um, when they're coming out to rescue the girls after the, the thaw, here's a baby cry. It's Adam and Millie's baby, but he assumes that it is the child of one of these women, which pretty sure they've been there six months. It was already winter and snowing when the boys were moping around before they went and kidnapped them. And the girls say that this, the snow is thawing in, in May. So pretty sure it's six months. I don't know why he thinks that there's a baby already, but um, he then, right, when, when they're, they're getting ready to take the women away and then asks, you know, whose, whose is the baby? And the women then say, oh, it's all of them claim the baby so that they can then get their, their father's permission to marry the Pontipi brothers. Um, and apparently the implication is their expressed desire to marry the Pontipi brothers would not have been sufficient to persuade their fathers to grant permission. But um, if they had a child, that would be okay, which I think is probably pointing to religion on a misinterpretation of Deuteronomy 22. You're going to have to refresh me on that one. That's uh, that wasn't one of the Bible verses I memorized. Alexa. Oh yeah. No, no, sorry. It's, it's the one that talks about, you know, uh, the circumstances for different, um, different basically rape scenarios if a woman is raped in a city uh then uh the implication is that she did not cry out and therefore she is a participant um and then if a woman is raped in the countryside she is exonerated because she cried out but no one could hear her and then um after that is uh if um if a man and a woman are uh, and then after that is the section where uh, if a man rapes a woman, um, depending on how you interpret the passage, he has to marry her. So I assume they're using that latter part of Deuteronomy 22 to say uh, if these men, you know, raped these women in a modern sense and not just in the abduction sense, then they're obligated to marry them. Um, I suppose there's also the concern about the child being um, illegitimate, but uh, I think it's probably supposed to be more of a... Um, a religious conviction, um, which, you know, if they'd had a baby and they desperately wanted not to marry the father of the baby, 
would they have still been forced to marry the father of the baby? Um, I just that that's not clear. But that that seems to be there. The the women are use appear to be using the religious convictions of the townspeople to a- obtain the end that they particularly want, which is to marry their respective Pontipi brother. Which is interesting, though. I was not expecting that. I don't know what I thought the end was going to be like, but I was kind of surprised to see them, you know, kind of heedless of whatever townspeople might think about them, you know, to say, oh, the baby's mine. So I'll say the baby's mine, to, like you said, to get what they want. Um, that was kind of interesting um, and not something that I, I didn't I didn't think that that was where the story was going to go. Possibly because they'd only been there six months. <laughs> Well, right. I mean, yeah, you know, that's a given. Um, well, I think we may have know about the answer to this, but does this maybe tell, does this have a positive message about the relationships between men and women? I mean, it, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like that there is something I, I, I would, I would like to say that there's something in Millie who I think that I think is positive. But again, like Alexis said earlier, not unequivocally positive because she she seems too too forgiving to be real in some ways. But I do think if there's anything positive in this film about relationships with men and women, I actually think that the, the I think the most positive thing about male female relationships in this movie is actually the sisterly bond that she develops with the younger brothers. Really, like I the way agree, and I was going to say that. Were you going to say that? Yes. <laughs> um, I, I don't think this movie says anything really very great about romantic relationships, but I think that it is a very nice portrayal of the civilizing influence, perhaps not just that a woman could have on a man, but that a, uh, that uh, like a sister could have on a brother. Um, and the way that um, they become attached to her, the way that they help, you know, they help when she's having her baby, you know, they help, um, they help out with the, you know, with getting things ready for the baby to come. Um, the way that Gideon, you know, the way that Gideon speaks up for her um, at the end of the film when he goes to see Adam and, and ends up punching him in the face because Adam says, oh, she didn't really have a baby. That's just a trick to get me to come back. Which and that line never made sense to me too, because he says it's just one of her tricks, as if she's pulled tricks before, but she hasn't really. Like when he says that, it doesn't really fit at all with who she is as a person at all. So it's kind of a stupid line. But what Gideon says is something like, "You you've lived with her as your wife, and you think that she's capable of that. Like what 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 would make you think you know?" So I mean, I think that 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 is the most positive thing about male female relationships in the movie. On the other side, I think it's very interesting that apparently men left to their own become slovenly animals and women left to their own in a house kept together for the whole winter uh, become vain and squabbly um, unless and until they're distracted by the prospect of potentially caring for a child. So that's awesome. <laughs> also, I have to say, I was my the maddest I got about that girl fight scene is that I was thinking to myself, okay, I know from Little House on the Prairie that it would never be warm enough, even inside the house in winter, for them to sit around in their corsets like they're doing. Like they should be, still, they should still be fully clothed with, with coats on. There should be icicles inside the house if it's Oregon in the winter. But you know. Also, P.S. The barn is probably super warm if the livestock live there. That's true. The boys get the better end of that deal. Living in the barn all, all winter. Yeah, I would I would say that um, you know you you kind of have the moments where like the girls are like playing like tricks on the guys like very briefly once they first get there, but it's very much played as like a flirtatious kind of thing and not any sort of like real like 
getting even, even even though they are throwing snowballs with rocks in them. I will say that um, for the, the the men becoming slovenly without women, having a, I mean, there is there is obviously for for many men there is an obvious an element of truth to that. Um, for many of the men I own, many of the single men I I know, but and then for the women of like the squabbling, that unfortunately, given some of the jobs I I have only ever worked jobs in like essentially 100% female dominated fields where like there's one dude and that's it. And so the, like all the women being around each other all the time and they start squabbling. I'm like, Oh yeah, that seems about right. Like, because that's like, to me, that's a bit more normal based off of like the work I've done. And that that's just like 97% has always been women. So that part was like, eh, that seems kind of about right. So I don't know. I feel like any group of people, snowed in for six months would eventually get fractious of either gender. Like, because, you know, it, it's, it's, it's cabin feverish, you know, and these girls too, you know, they, they were, they were reft away from their families. So it's not even as if they were able to bring anything away. You know, they have like one dress unless Millie's made them more clothes, which by the way, I'm sorry, I, I meant to say this whole time and I totally forgot one of my favorite things about this movie. Um, and I didn't say this at the beginning, but um, the, this movie was costume designed by Walter Plunkett, who also did all the costume designs for Gone with the Wind. Um, I knew I knew his name from somewhere and then I looked it up, but I love Millie's quilt dresses. That's what I wanted to say. She has that skirt that looks like a crazy quilt. Um, and when I was researching the movie, apparently Plunkett went and got old quilts and used them to make the dresses for the movie, which I love. No, they they have very yeah. The implication is that Millie is like a very very talented seamstress, right? That like she's making all the clothes for like the guys. And again, not to take things too literally, but I was sitting here thinking, I was like, man, they must have a lot of food if essentially they doubled. Like they added an extra six people, and we were fine for food. <laughs> That's true. Especially since Adam's not there to, like, hunt or whatever, because, of course, he makes a giant mess, and then as soon as someone calls him to account for it, his response is to completely bail and leave this giant mess that he literally created and have no part whatsoever in dealing with the aftermath. Chapter 150 in Why Adam is the Worst. (laughs) Well, and it's interesting, too, because, you know... He it's interesting to me that they felt okay to make a movie in which they've they've put this guy forward as the main male character and then just take him away. And I've no problem making everything in the house and everything in the movie seem so much better while he's gone. (laughs) It's kind of funny. Like, you know, she everybody's having a great time. And when he comes back, they're literally playing musical chairs like it's it's just it's you know, it's a happy, harmonious home now without him. And then he comes back, you know. Um, thankfully at the 11th hour to realize that he was, did something completely ridiculous. But yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I don't know. It's interesting that his response to, to any kind of challenge to his authority or to his, um, you know, to his choices is to just want to revert back to his, to, to his, not just to his single man state, but even back even further in maybe his maturation and development because he's he's leaving everyone. So he's leaving behind his role as a husband, but he's also leaving behind his role as head of the family, right? Like he goes up to the trapping cabin for the winter. He didn't have to bother with any of his brothers. He's literally just a man on his own doing his thing. And it's just this giant kind of step backwards while the brothers seem to be continuing to progress in his absence in their maturity. So that maybe when he comes back, maybe now they're all kind of, 
he's on a level with them. He's not the big brother who makes the decisions for us anymore. He's, you know, no more mature than they are because they've all grown, you know, so much. And this relates somewhat, I think, to male-female relationships, but it also incorporates your point earlier about the dance, Katie. I thought it was really interesting the way dance was used in that barn scene because the style of dance was so different between the townsmen and the brothers. Uh, the initial setup of the dance was much more of like set dancing. Um, it was all very structured and formal and stilted, and it was it was corporate. Right? You had a whole group of people sort of dancing together. It wasn't paired off. And then you have the brothers coming in um, in a much more wild and athletic and exciting form of dance, which the townsmen then try to emulate and incorporate those elements into their own dancing. Um, and then uh, and then it also is more paired off. Right. And and which is part of like the history of dance, right, where you have the, the set dancing and the folk dancing and the corporate dancing. And then you have the advent of some of the dances like the waltz that were perceived as scandalous because of the physical proximity that they encouraged, but they were much more paired off. So we sort of see that happening even in the course of the dance. Um, and then it even transitions further where the women are no longer even participating. Apparently the women were more than capable of keeping up with the brothers. Like they don't have a problem keeping up with this new exciting wild form of dance they're more than equal to that but then they're no longer even participants and while they're the focus of the dance because it's it's about them and for them because the the men are all trying to show off but then the men sort of lose that focus and are focused on each other and their competition women no longer get to participate and are now relegated to the role of spectator and then it continues to build from there into the ultimate conflict um in a nice piece of foreshadowing or or i guess more just a, a continuity between characters, uh, we see the brothers willing to overlook offenses to themselves, but rising to the defense of Adam. Millie, right, overlooks many an offense to herself, but but draws the line at offenses to her friends. So in both cases, the brothers and Millie will not stand for uh, an injury to another person. So they're sort of mirroring what she's going to do. And then you end up with this escalating to the point where their lack of self-control literally causes uh, a wall to fall down. Like it's a literal reenactment of uh, what I looked it up because I was like, that reminds me of a Bible verse. But it's Proverbs 25, 28. A man who does not control his temper is like a city whose wall is broken down. And we see that happen in live action. So I just I I don't know exactly what they're trying to say about male female relationships and courtship in that scene. But it just seemed like there were a lot of interesting pieces that they were showing. I think that um, another thing about the you were talking about how they dan the men of the town dance differently. Something I meant to say earlier but forgot is one other thing that makes this film um, one of one of the ways they temper the terribleness of the whole abduction is by making all these town suitor guys seem unlikable. Like to, um, particularly yeah, they look very skeezy and like they have very slicked back hair and they're wearing suits versus these like strapping like bra like Mr. Brawny kind of guys who are like yeah. men like, well, of course, who wouldn't want to be abducted if I were if like my choice is this handsome, rugged dude versus this like skinny little weaselly. Uh, well, and not just in their presentation, too, but whichever girl it is, because I'm not the only one whose name I can remember, to be honest, is Dorcas, um, because Julie, New Julie, Julie, well, and it's an unfortunate name. And Ju Julie Newmar is so tall. She's so tall. And so it's always easier to pick her out of the lineup. But um, it's not her. But one of the other ones, when her guy comes to kidnap her, or whatever, she's finishing up a, some kind of courting call with another guy. And that guy is pressing her to kiss him. 
Now she's okay with that. Like she's going to give him a kiss and then whichever Ponope brother it is, you know, yoinks him out of the way and replaces him. So she ends up kissing him. But, you know, the, the implication is that these town guys, you know, are, are totally, you know, they're, they're, they're wanting, or I mean, if we want to use more biblical language, they're lusting after these women too, or whatever they, they want, you know, they want to have these women too. They're not, their motives aren't presented as, here is the driven snow either in a way that's probably meant to soften the blow of the abduction it doesn't it obviously it doesn't work completely but i thought that was interesting too that there there's that really clear um and particularly in the in the barn raising scene when they're they're worried the Ponape brothers are going to win this barn raising contest and start physically hurting them like that you know that is uh it it definitely makes it makes you you know feel less bad when the Ponape brothers start throwing punches because they're, it's not just, they're not just, their rivals aren't making snide remarks. They're literally hitting them with two by fours. So. Well, and there's a a little moment at the beginning that I thought was really interesting when Adam is singing his first awful song, um, wandering around the town, considering various women as one might consider a horse, because really the things he talks about, about a woman are things people talk about with horses. They want them to work hard, look good and have a, have some spirit. So, that's awesome also. But while he's evaluating all these different women, uh, one of the women that he is looking at and considering, a man is with her and is like, wait, 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 you know, I'm, I want to marry her. And she's like, oh, well, I thought you'd never ask. And so it's interesting that his forthrightness ends up being a sort of catalyst for, um, for this apparently, um, you know, sort of guy, the guy that's been dragging his heels to actually um, pop the question. Um, and the, the implication does seem to be that they are less masculine and maybe less direct, um, less forthright in their ability to ask for what they want because of all these social conventions that they're bound, bound by. Yeah. That makes sense. a little more uh, kind of Roman and a little bit uh Roman history and a little more uh, the, uh, the ancient asides, the, uh, all of the Ponte brothers have the that virtus, right? That like manliness that they that is so important to like a Roman. Um, in in contrast, um, and they are they are these unman like uncivilized manly guys versus yeah these much kind of weaker city boys who are living in this big old city town that's has thirty five people who live there. But you know it's a bastion of civilization. So, ladies, so I guess two final questions for us. One, is this movie actually complementarian, and are we allowed to like it? Well, I will say I I think it is a movie that might look um, at first glance like it's complementarian, but I don't think it is. I think you could make an argument that Millie is a complementarian wife, but I don't think you can make an argument that Adam is a complementarian husband. I don't think we see him loving her sacrificially at any moment in the film. We've talked about the way that he evaluates women. Um, I actually think it's interesting that the brother's song that they sing, which we've mentioned, actually has a, a better idea of marriage than anything Adam says, because they at least talk about um, activities other than hard work uh, that that um, comprise a marriage. They talk about things like shooting the breeze and companionship and the idea of like to like, right? They're a polecat looking for a polecat or a, an owl looking for an owl, uh, which reminded me of Jen Wilkins' um, um, 
point that she makes a lot about the creation account that when Adam sees Eve, right, he says, same of my same, flesh of my flesh, that there's a sameness between men, men and women. And I, you don't get that same um, equality from Adam in the way that he talks about um, Millie, I don't think. Um, and in fact, he doesn't want a wife. He wants a serving woman, as Millie points out, um, which reminded me, I've recently was rewatching The Quiet Man, uh, which came out two years earlier. Um, it had a very similar setup where a new bride accused her husband of treating her like a serving woman um, with much less cause in that movie, but with a much stronger reaction in that movie because it was Maureen O'Hara. And I kept thinking about how Maureen O'Hara would respond in these situations and kind of wishing I was watching that movie, um, uh, which and as a very random aside, there's even the same broken bed gag in The Quiet Man. Um, where the couple has not consummated, consummated their marriage, but the bed ends up broken and other people make assumptions about what that consummation looked like. Um, so I don't think that it is a complementarian um, film because of the way that Adam responds and the way that he treats her. I don't think that his change of heart at the end is actually a change of heart. Um, it wasn't enough. His love for Millie wasn't enough to make him come back for the first six months or whatever it was. It, it wasn't until um, he had a daughter and feelings that he came back. So I think you're allowed to like it, but um, I have real serious questions about it. Uh, like I said before, the Stockholm Syndrome um, issue, um, I, I would have questions about to what degree the, the women who chose to stay were choosing to stay. And I think it raises interesting questions about how you would even deal with a situation like that, um, which then reminded me of another film from two years after this one, The Searchers, um, which also John Wayne, um, where they're looking for a girl who's been carried off by the Apache Indians, I believe it is. Um, and they have to decide how to handle it if she wants to stay um, and whether it's whether it's actually her choice, her free choice to stay or how much she has been affected by her um, uh, her capture and her, her stay with them. Um, so I think those are just interesting questions to think about. And I think, like I said, you're free to like it. Um, I will say for me, I put it in the same category as rent. It's a good, mu it's a good musical, but everyone in it is terrible. I, I, I think I would agree with what you're saying about, about it not being, or at least about his half of the relationship, not being a complementarian relationship. Um, I think that, one might say on a very surface level, this movie feels sort of complementarian because there is great attention paid to showing differences between men and women. And um, in this and that kind of like you said, that kind of primal or, you know, beginning creation um, idea of, you know, the man takes his wife and they cleave to each other and because they're the same and all that kind of stuff. But I think that. Um, I think that it, 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 it is wide of the mark in various places. And I think that Adam is the source of the problem. As far as if we can, if we can love the, or like the movie or not, um, like you said, Alexis, you know, there, I think we all have films that we, we like the film, but even though, you know, there are all kinds of reasons we shouldn't. And I think the reason that I think it's fine to like this film is what I said earlier about how particularly musicals, you can have that dissociation from, you know, problematic plot elements because there are so many redeeming qualities in, but mostly in this, in this film for me, it's in, it's in the dancing even more than the music. Um, and that I think um, is one reason um, that it has endured and it's been so popular is because 
I mean, some of those dance sequences are just astonishing. And that way, it and and I it actually reminds me a lot of one of my very favorite musicals, which is White Christmas. In that, um, most of the best parts of White Christmas to me are specific dance numbers. Um, I mean, there are elements of that plot that I actually really like a lot. I don't I don't have issues with the plot of that movie the way that I do with Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. But um, there there's a similar thing for me with that movie of there are, are there are dance scenes in that movie that I can play the entire thing in my head because I never forgot them after I saw them because they're just so interesting and different. And um, the way that they incorporate um, the the scenery and the things around them and things like that. So um, I think that it's I mean, I, I you know, I enjoyed having seen it. Um, and I enjoyed talking about reasons why it could be <laughs> not great in terms of plot. But I think that um, it's and I think that's one reason it, it, it got some kind of award, maybe from the American Film Institute for having an enduring and influential space in American musical film. And I think that what earned at that spot is is the dancing and the choreography and the music more than anything else. And I think that's that's the part that is easiest to love about this movie. Well, I am going to agree with both of you ladies that this uh, movie isn't really complimentarian, which when I, uh, audience, when I originally proposed it, I, I, like I said, I love this movie. I've watched it dousands of times, but I, I'd always just watched it to, oh, I'm going to enjoy it. I love the dancing. And I had honestly, I, I hadn't actually put a huge amount of depth and thought into it in terms of like, oh, what does this really mean? And then when I watched it twice with that, I'm like, oh, well, I still love this movie and I still like singing the songs and all sorts of things, but I, I too had to come to the same conclusion as my, um, as my friends here that it's, that though surface level, it, it feels like it should be because the men are off doing man things and they're out working and Millie is very happy and content to be at home and she wants to be a wife and she wants to be a mother and all the other women, like we want to be married. Like that's a thing that is expressed by those characters and they're like, oh, well, that, that seems to fit the model. But, yes, I would agree that, you know, Millie uh, seems to be content to fulfill her side of it. It, it can't be complementarian unless there is a compliment, unless the man is also doing his part and Adam uh, really isn't doing that. And as are we allowed to like it, you know, even if we weren't, I probably still would because I just, I don't know, I like it. I just, I enjoy it. And, and the way that there are lots of things that we w- watch when we're younger and we're like, oh, this is great. And I like the energy. I, You know, the brothers are, most of them are fairly handsome, even though, like, they're, two or three of them are fairly interchangeable for, like, personality. Like, you could show me about three of them and you'd be like, this one is Daniel. I'm like, sure it is. Like, you just, you kind of, I know the, the oldest two and the youngest one, that's about it. But, yeah, I, I enjoy it and I think we're allowed to like it in the same way that, you know, things that are fun are fun. And as long as we uh, take them with the, with a grain of salt and know that this obviously isn't teaching us anything morally, I think that we're going to be okay with it. And especially again, like I said, it, it does fit the same uh, narrative as many, many romances, uh, romance novels. And so I think that narrative of that kind of abduction thing because that is very uh, fairly prevalent in a lot of romance novels, it just seems a little more familiar to me, and so I'm I'm just naturally more comfortable with consuming it. So, um, and I would I will say too, I think, that, and this is not something that happens just with this movies, like just with this movie. I know that there were movies that I watched on loop, Disney movies that I watched on loop as a kid, 
and love the music, whatever, didn't really give much thought to the story per se. And then now as an adult watching them now, I'm thinking, what was my mom thinking letting me watch The Little Mermaid? Which is one great. I mean, that's just like my mom was wanting my, my daughter to watch The Little Mermaid when she was like three. And I, and I said, no, <laughs> we're not going to watch this movie. You know, there are all these things that strike me now, you know, that I mean, but but it doesn't. But like one day she will watch it, you know, and I'll be fine with that. But it's it's one of those things that I think that happens all the time where we, you know, we encounter something for the first time. Um, I think it ha- most often happens when if you if you encounter something when you're a young person. But, you know, you you can you notice different things when you are first introduced to something than you might having seen it lots of times. And then and having had more time to think about it. Um, I, all my friends in college made me watch the never ending story and they all loved it. And they were in love with this movie and it was one of their favorite things. And they loved it as a childhood, but I didn't see it when I was a kid. And when they made me watch it in college at the end of it, I said, this is a terrible movie. This is so depressing and it's frightening and it's scary. And why do you guys love this so much? You know, because I was seeing it with different eyes, you know, um, anyway, it, it, it's, it's one of those things that I think when you, when you, you know that you can develop an affection for a story um, and because you just notice different things um, when it's new. Well, and I think that can be encouraging to us, right? To know that you can see something and, and it can have objectively problematic elements and thanks to the grace of God, um, not necessarily internalize those things. Um, you know, you you know, people presumably, you know, Sarah, you growing up watching this film and loving it didn't grow up thinking um, it's acceptable to kidnap a woman in order to make her marry you. Um, and I mean, there, there can certainly be ways in which we internalize things and we don't realize it. But I think that can be an encouragement to realize that. Someone who watches it at a young age is not necessarily seeing and understanding or even being affected by all of what's there. That said, I am curious, Katie, um, would you show this movie to your kids? I would not, but that is because my my oldest is the only one who's old enough to even understand it, and she is autistic. So she takes everything super literally. So no, I would not show this movie to her. Because she and, and 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 it's interesting because, you know, I talked about like watching, you know, Disney movies as a kid and not noticing the terrible stuff. Right. But the thing about it, her is because she's on the spectrum, that ability to just not see something, she doesn't have it. She notices everything. So if we watch this movie, this is what would happen immediately. She would say, why are they crying? Why they're crying? They're upset. Why won't the boys take th- take them back? What is like? She would want it. She would notice every emotion. She would notice every person's discomfort, and she would resonate with that. And then she would immediately. So actually, my kid would immediately be struck by the problematic aspects of it. In her case, I think it's because she doesn't have those that you know kind of ability that most neurotypical people have. Like we were talking about to just shrug off something <laughs> that's actually kind of terrible if you really think about it. Um, now, if I had seen it, if I had seen it when I was a kid, if my mom had let me watch, I think my mom just didn't know about this movie. Cause I don't ever remember her watching it. Um, I feel like that um, I would probably would have been fine with it, but you know what? My mom let me watch Greece when I was a kid and I was fine with it. I don't remember. I mean, I could sing every word of there are worse things I could do at like 10. That's troubles me now. Like, but at the time, I didn't think anything about it. And, you know, so, I mean, it's my mom would let us watch it on TBS with like, which took out some of the words. But, you know, the plot is still the plot of Greece. I'm still like, Mom, what, what were you thinking? Um, so, no, I would not let my kids watch it. But my kid is this kind of a special case. So I don't know. Would you let your kids watch it? Either of you? 
I I don't think I would. I mean, obviously, at some point, like, I'm not going to police what my, you know, 17-year-old watches necessarily, but my oldest is in kindergarten. Um, We don't really watch movies, so it's kind of a hypothetical issue for me. Wouldn't be for a while. It wouldn't be for a while, and it would have to be with some very serious conversations about what's happening, because I don't, I don't, I don't even like the sort of summary story of it. The most basic plot element of it is it's problematic even in that summary statement. It's not just peripheral to the story. It is the story. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I just, I, I couldn't do it. So if for, it's one thing for me to say, okay, I can hear those songs and acknowledge that it's a good song or enjoy the dance number. Um, I might show them like a video of the, of the barn raising scene um, to show them dancing or something like that. But uh, the story itself, I, it, it would be a while and it would be with some pretty hard conversations, I think, before watching it. Well, I have no kiddos of my own, so uh, not really, I guess, a question I, I would be able to say. And, you know, and I, I know enough mothers to be able to say that, like, oh, well, when I have kids, like, it completely changes. So I, I make no problem. <laughs> sure. Listeners, thanks for uh, joining us to uh, listen to our, the third episode of Complementarianish. Uh, as we said earlier, we are the occasional offshoot of the Christian Feminist Podcast. We want to thank Coyle Neal for editing all of our uh, very, very wise words. And thanks for listening to us talk about this very interesting movie and how it can mean many things to many different people. And it's if nothing else, it has some amazing dancing. If you ever think that boys should dance, watch this movie. It's the best male dancing you'll ever see.